We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Here we are. Fergus Brewing. This is so fun. To be here at Fergus Brewing. Um, Amazing. It's our first official out of state show. So uh, kind of a landmark event for us. And I will tell everyone listening at home or presently, tonight's show comes with an added listener discretion. It is the darkest episode that we have ever covered. So Don, what are people saying about Midwest murder? Shanavok. Wow. Ufta. Nothing, nothing says that was Midwest. her, not Dawn. Yeah. That was yeah. That wasn't that wasn't me. That was Midwest. Nothing says that uh, more. Yeah. What can I say about this podcast other than it's amazing? The true crime stories are hard hitting and brutal. There's no wishy washy way about their presentation. They're raw and real. Having you in my ears while I'm doing my mundane tasks has made things much more enjoyable. The fact that I can be listening along and hear names that I know, Slurby, for example. Landmarks I recognize or places I've lived makes this podcast my new number one. Yes, I'm a crime junkie obsessed with all things murder, not in a sadistic fashion. It's good to point out. She also said that. (laughs) But hearing about these heinous crimes committed in my backyard brings an entirely new perspective to this beautiful state we live in. Please keep these coming and I can't wait to catch you in mine at at your live taping. And then Red Carrie Lou. Awesome. My first podcast. So glad I found this. I love the hosts and storytelling. I can't wait for the next one. Bam, straight to the point with that one. I like it. Yeah, it's super cool. And we don't read these to pump our own tires or to uh, boost our ego or anything like that. We read them because, you know, like Jonah said uh, before, he look, he listens for his name on, on other podcasts and, yeah. and, and stuff like that. So it's kind of fun to, to hear that. Um, but the reason why we ask you to rate and review is because it helps our little podcast kind of move up the charts a little bit. And we live and die by an algorithm these days. So that, that does help. So please yeah. rate and review. We totally do, uh, for sure. For the for fans of Midwest Murder who want to help us get to the next level, you can take a quick moment to review our show on iTunes, and that's really the best way to help us get recognized out there and climb the podcast charts. We're really grateful for everyone who takes the time out of their busy lives to review the show. We're also Absolutely. super grateful for truck stops because the Midwest really wouldn't be complete, Dawn, without truck stops. Who make a lot of ranch. They make a, our truck stop back home, Shots Crossroads, they make so much ranch, it's almost ridiculous. You could bathe in the amount of ranch they make every day. It's about eight gallons. Eight gallons. Eight, eight gallons. gallons and not that only do they make Midwest more than all that ranch, 
They make caramel rolls. And I know caramel rolls to us in the Midwest, they're normal. But guys, when you leave the Midwest, people don't know about caramel rolls. It's insane. So if you're listening out there and you're not in the Midwest and you don't know what a caramel roll is. I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Figure it out and your local pastry people have failed (laughs) you. So big thanks to Shots Crossroads for everything they do in supporting Midwest Murder, our community. It's a really legendary place serving breakfast, lunch, dinner 24-7. We totally love them. So huge thank you. Gravy. They're delicious. Yeah, fries, fries with gravy and ranch. It's the only time I want like two dipping things, like ranch, hands, gravy, just... ketchup. I'm double fisting everything at Shots Crossroads, especially at 3 a.m. Right, because so, we've all been there at 3 a.m. too. We have. They may have saved yeah. me a time or two at, at, yes. at that at that hour. Absolutely. So I'm taking us back tonight to 1985. The Cold War is as serious and as dangerous as it's ever been. People wonder if we're on the brink of nuclear nuclear annihilation. The AIDS crisis is killing people at an alarming rate, and neither treatment nor cure are in sight. The United States suffers the worst economic recession since the Great Depression. There is widespread and horrific famine in Ethiopia, and mad cow disease first appears in Great Britain. Cities across America suffer urban decay, and gangs move in. The use of crack cocaine skyrockets. And gang warfare is nightly fodder for television news. It's not all bad, however. Hulk Hogan defeated Iron Sheik to win his first World Wrestling Federation title at Madison Square Garden, New York. And I think that brought a lot of hope to the people of America. Well, hell yeah, brother. (laughs) Part of Central Park is named Strawberry Fields, honoring John Lennon. And here's another thing that was happening back in 85. An Australian film company called Kennedy Miller Productions, releases what appears to be the third and final installment in a very successful film franchise. That franchise? Mad Max. And Mad Max is hugely successful in America. It's the 80s. It's a pretty grim decade, and it's easy for people to feel hopeless. It's very easy for people to become afraid in this atmosphere. It all feels, well, feels kind of apocalyptic. Like the end of the world is upon us. Actually, American history is deeply rooted in apocalyptic ideology. Early European migration to the new world is fueled in part by the idea that a person can leave the old world behind and start anew. Columbus thought that he had found the new earthly paradise in the new world. The Puritans believed they could build the new earthly paradise in the new world. Those early European settlers were very focused on the aftermath of the apocalypse, the new earthly paradise that is achieved after the Armageddon. But in the 20th century, especially in the after half of the 20th century, Americans get really focused on Armageddon itself, the final battle between good and evil. And given the social, cultural, economic, and political upheavals of the 80s, It was easy for people to fall into the doom and gloom trap. It was easy to fall prey to thinking like the end of the world was coming and we'd better get ready for it. And all those things that Americans were struggling with in the 80s, the AIDS crisis, the Cold War, economic recession, you can add one more thing to it, a farm crisis. In the 80s, the right-wing, extremist, racist, and anti-Semitic organization known as the Posse Comitatus sees the farm crisis as an opportunity to spread their message and create a white, sovereign citizen republic. 
They, they tell failing farmers that they are victims of a Jewish-led, communist-supported conspiracy that has infiltrated the government and is robbing them of their land, their farms, their homes, even their way of life. Their battle cry becomes, quote, The farmers must prepare to defend their families and land with their lives or surrender it all. Some farmers believe the posse comitatus is really going to help them. In their own eyes, these farmers feel that they're doing everything they should be doing. They work hard. They play by the rules. They go to church. They love their families. They believe in their way of life, their stewardship of the land, and the American tradition of the family farmer. When the institutions farmers believe in, the church, government, bank, and community begin telling them that it's their own fault that they're losing their farms, Anger fuels their desperation, and they become much more susceptible to the message of the Posse Comitatus. And it's a message increasingly influenced by another extremist, right-wing, racist, and anti-Semitic ideology, Christian identity. According to the Anti-Defamation League, Christian identity is a religious ideology popular in extreme right-wing circles. Adherents believe that white people of European descent can be traced back to the lost tribes of Israel. It's a virulent, racist, and anti-Semitic beliefs are usually accompanied by extreme anti-government sentiments. Despite its small size, Christian identity influences virtually all white supremacist and extreme anti-government movements. It has also informed criminal behavior ranging from hate crimes to acts of terrorism. I find I find the fact that it's How called, did it get popular? It's crazy. Well, I, I, well, I think it's that cult mentality. But I find it odd that it's called Christian identity, but yet it kind of goes against absolutely everything. It's not the Christian identity it, I learned. No. So at the forefront of both the Posse Comitatus and the Christian identity movement in the Midwest is one man, one dark and twisted man, James Wickstrom. As a young man in the mid-60s, James Wickstrom didn't like what he saw happening in America. Advances in civil rights and equality for women and people of color bother him greatly. And the rise of the counterculture experimentation with sex, drugs, and other kinds of freedom repulse him. He sees it all as a sign that America is off course and becoming weak in character. In the mid-70s, Wickstrom begins listening to tapes of William Potter Gale, one of the founders of Posse Comitatus and a fierce proponent of Christian identity politics. Christian identity ideology tells Wickstrom everything he wants to hear. It tells him that he is one of God's chosen people and a member of the Israelite tribe. It introduces him to the idea that Jews are the demonic offspring of a sexual union between Eve and Satan. It tells him that blacks are subhuman because they can't blush, that they are no more than beasts of the field, and they are tools used by the Jews in their fight to destroy the white race. So that's that's the ideology. That is that's in a that's, nutshell. That's what they t- and and people are are eating it up. And to Wickstrom, it all makes sense. It explains everything he believes is wrong with America. It is unfortunately a self fulfilling prophecy. 
A self-fulfilling prophecy is a process through which an originally false expectation leads to its own confirmation. In other words, in a self-fulfilling prophecy, a person's expectations about another person or entity eventually result in the other person or entity acting in ways that confirm the expectations. James Wickstrom is a racist, a sexist, and an anti-Semite, pure and simple. The poisonous brew of posse comitatus and Christian identity handily confirm and excuse his bigoted and hateful views. So what does James Wickstrom do? He declares himself a reverend and begins preaching a hellfire brand of biblical misinterpretation, racism, and anti-Semitism. So if you can, you can just declare yourself a reverend, just... He declared like it, that. and then it was so. Like giving yourself your own nickname. Yeah. It seems Given, equally like, as cool. It's like a really hollow title. Like one person who sells something and is a CEO. I mean, I think like a CEO requires employees in my mind. And or like, like a, the, the like, institute of, right. you can put the word institute in front of In front of anything. Of anything. <laughs> yeah. You can be an individual institute in some cases. Right. So Wickstrom travels all across the Midwest, appearing at packed meeting halls, in basements, and at farm shows. Quote, I knew that something had to be done, he says. I knew that the ranchers and the farmers were being meticulously destroyed by the Jew banking system in America. And James Wickstrom really, really hates Jews. His sentiments are fairly summarized in an interview he gave late in his life. Quote, I'd like to see these Jews all brought to the VA and wooden chairs be put down on the lawn. Tie the Jews in, bring these veterans down who have been mutilated, and give them baseball bats and let them beat these Jews to death. Every one of them. Take these chairs and Jews after they're beaten to death, throw them in the wood chipper. And from the wood chipper, let the remains go into a big incendiary truck, which is right behind the wood chipper, and give them the holocaust they rightly deserve. That was from an interview in 2004. In meetings and Bible study groups all over the Midwest, Wickstrom tells people that both taxes and the federal government are illegitimate. He tells them that it is up to the people to regain their power through direct action. And by direct action, he means vigilante action. He tells them Jews, tax collectors, and other enemies of the people should be lynched. Wickstrom finds a lot of support in the American heartland, a lot of downtrodden, God-fearing people who need to hear some kind of explanation of what's happening to them and their way of life. And eventually, Wickstrom's evil message finds its way to the very willing ears of a guy named Mike Ryan, who's living in Whiting, Kansas. The part that's terrifying is that you're just, you're introducing somebody else that, uh, you know, very willing ears. So I, I feel like this is foreshadowing. And the guy that just had that horrible quote isn't the worst person in the story. No, no, he's, yeah, he's, he's the kind of that seed that gets planted in the word worst mm-hmm. person yeah, of, this, yeah. of the story. And that's what's scary because Wickstrom was all over the U.S. It, it, it packed and people were dying to get into uh, his speeches. So it, it, it's, it's, it's pretty intense. Mike Ryan 
Mike Ryan grew up poor and in a family that didn't much pay attention to him. His dad was a drinker and a fighter, and his mother was susceptible to violent mood swings. He didn't do well in school and didn't have a lot of friends. Kids picked on him, and in high school, he got the nickname Dogface because of his acne. He drops out of school his senior year and begins to kick around from job to job. Like his dad, he's got a temper, and he's prone to blaming everyone else for his problems. He's good at getting jobs. He can turn on the charm, but he's bad at keeping them. Every time he loses a job, it's always someone else's fault, never his own. By the late 70s, Mike is driving a big rig truck and it seems to suit him. No stupid-ass boss to tell him what to do, to hold him accountable. And owning his own truck makes him feel like the king of the road. In 1979, Mike injures his back trying to tie down a load on his truck and everything goes sour. He feels like, once again... The world is out to get him, like nothing can ever go right for Mike Ryan. Mike's recovery takes a long time. He's laid up, out of work, and growing increasingly bitter and angry about his lot in life. He finally gets back on the road, but then in 1982, his truck breaks down on a long haul to California, and Mike can't afford to fix it. Feels like a failure, but he's got that big old chip on his shoulder. It's not his fault. And he needs someone to blame. In May of that year, 1982, Mike's brother-in-law, Steve Patterson, takes him to a posse comitatus meeting. Mike isn't much into the posse comitatus movement. He goes to the meeting mostly just to humor his brother-in-law. But that night, the main speaker at the meeting is James Wickstrom. And that night... What Mike Ryan hears in James Wickstrom's contorted and malignant words rings truer to him than anything he's ever heard. In his speech that night, Wickstrom begins with his usual hateful rhetoric and conspiracy theories. The Jew-run banks and federal loan agencies are like a pimp and a whore working together as they foreclose on thousands of farms in America. Right now as I speak... Now the farmer is in debt up to his ears, and the Jew banker, who already gained real control over the land and money values, started to increase the value of farmland. He fooled you, didn't he? Yes, he did. You believed you were getting ahead, didn't you? They got you. The Jew banks and federal loan agencies are committing treason, extortion, and outright theft under the guise of law and so-called human liberty. And they're doing this under the eyes of Almighty God, Jesus the Christ. We must rid ourselves of this wickedness. Mike Ryan's got his own prejudices and hatred, as well as his own struggles with poverty and displacement. And he likes what he's hearing. But then, Wickstrom's speech takes a sharp turn. And what he says next really gets Mike's attention. Yahweh is a god of war, Wickstrom exclaims. He came not to send peace, but to send a sword. Soldiers of Yahweh are here to bring in a kingdom and destroy the wickedness in the land. Wickstrom promises Armageddon, Armageddon right there in Kansas, and promises that the outcome will be a new America, one inhabited solely by pure white Anglo-Saxon people. To Mike Ryan, the guy with the huge chip on his shoulder, the guy who thinks all his troubles are someone else's fault, the guy who is 
quick to anger and prone to leading with his fists, Armageddon in Kansas sounds just fine. Out of work, with lots of time on his hands, Mike continues to study Wickstrom's message, listening to tapes, reading pamphlets, poring over his Bible. In November of 1982, Mike Ryan and Steve Patterson traveled to James Wickstrom's paramilitary compound in Wisconsin to spend a weekend listening to speeches and participating in survivalist training. What happens to Mike in Wisconsin changes everything. Mike scores a private audience with Wickstrom, and at the end of their discussion, Wickstrom subjects Mike to the so-called arm test. He tells Mike to hold his right arm straight out from his body. Then Wickstrom puts his left hand on Mike's extended forearm and asks a series of questions. Yahweh God, he says, are Mike Ryan and James Wickstrom clean enough to speak with you? Then he pushes down on Mike's arm, but it doesn't move. Yahweh God, he asks again, is Mike Ryan in need of five days of fasting and repentance? He pushes on Mike's arm again, and this time it drops like a rock. So the so this arm, super is, scientific, which is the uh, all telling, like yay or nay. So yes, it falls. No, it's it's rock salt. Well, just, and even if it does or does not, he can always interpret it how he wants. Really, oh, the arm test completely is completely scientific. Then yeah. this makes sense. Oh, okay, yeah. the arm test is pure bullshit. A powerful kind of psychological manipulation because whether a subject's arm rises, stays steady, or falls, Wickstrom can interpret it on the spot to mean anything he wants it to mean. (laughs) Nevertheless, Mike Ryan is spellbound, convinced that Wickstrom has a direct conduit to God. Based on the arm test, Wickstrom tells Mike to commit to three days of fasting and repentance and to ask Yahweh for forgiveness, and promises that all of Mike's troubles and woes will melt away. Mike is blown away. He feels special. He feels chosen. He knows he'll do exactly what Wickstrom tells him to do. Later that night, Wickstrom delivers an inflamed speech about Armageddon, telling those in attendance to stockpile food and weapons to prepare for battle. Mike eats it up with a spoon. He knows it's all true. After all, he's been given the arm test, and he knows Wickstrom speaks directly to God. Of course he does. When Mike Ryan returns to White in Kansas, he's a changed man. He's a man on a mission. He now has a purpose in life. He's going to help bring about Armageddon and extract revenge on anyone and everyone who's ever pushed him around in life. Back in Whiting... Mike begins to recruit friends and family in preparation for the impending battle. And the arm test, as bizarre and absurd as it may seem, the arm test becomes Mike Ryan's greatest source of power, a power he wields over a group of people who ultimately become part of what we can only call a cult. Mike Ryan begins to exert his power at home. His first target is his wife and mother of three, Ruth. Mike and Ruth began dating when she's a sophomore and he's a senior in high school. They get married when she's 17 and he's 21. And like Mike, Ruth never finishes high school. 
Ruth had been quite overweight when she was young, and kids had teased her mercilessly about it. After a bout of mononucleosis, she's quite slim as a teenager, but still suffers very low self-esteem. Mike has a reputation as a bad boy, a rebel, and when he turns his attention and affection toward her, it's hard to resist. She falls hard for Mike, and the two try, unsuccessfully, to elope while still in high school. Eventually, they marry against her parents' wishes. Truth be told, it's not a very good marriage, because Mike can never hold down a job, money is always tight, and they fight all the time. Well, and because he seems like a super great guy. I don't know what's wrong with her. Uh, Yeah. And Mike is quick with his fists with his wife. Nearly 15 years into their marriage, Ruth now lives in fear of Mike. She'd like to leave, just grab the kids and go. But she knows Mike would never let her be free. He threatens to torture her or cut her throat if she leaves him. And Ruth believes him. Mike isn't only abusive to Ruth, he's also unfaithful. He easily engages in lots of one-night stands while he's on the road driving truck. He even brings women into their home when Ruth is away. It all comes to a head when a young, petite blonde, a single mother, moves to town and befriends Ruth. It doesn't take long before Mike is insisting on a menage a trois. Ruth feels powerless to resist, and before long, they're all living together. But Mike is just as physically abusive with the new woman as he is with Ruth. But she's stronger, more sure of herself than Ruth is. And after a few months, the threesome is over. It ends in a violent altercation in which one of the children had to call the cops. And Mike isn't just violent toward the women in his life. He abuses his kids, too. And there's nothing Ruth can do to stop it. She feels like a helpless coward, powerless against him. Their marriage is not great, but one thing that keeps them together over the years is their unwavering faith in God, and soon their love would renew under a new faith born from the hateful teachings of James Wickstrom. James Wickstrom isn't just a good hellfire and damnation speaker. He's also a master manipulator adept at bringing people together, and James Wickstrom has his eye on Mike Ryan. A blowhard and egomaniac himself, he sees Mike's bluster and swagger as leadership qualities, and he's eager to put him in touch with other fellow posse comitatus travelers. At various posse meetings at Wickstrom's Wisconsin compound in November of 82, he brings four people into Mike Ryan's widening circle of true believers. Jimmy Haverkamp, James Thim, David Andres, and Rick Stice. Jimmy Haverkamp lives in Mercer, Kansas, the town of 30 where he was born and raised. He's a struggling hog farmer whose one year of egg studies at a local junior college isn't helping him keep his head above water. When times were better for farmers, he'd borrow a lot of money. Now he's $50,000 in debt and his failing business is taking a toll on his life. Jimmy's been a devout Catholic all his life, and he's prone to looking to the Bible for answers. As his financial and personal troubles mount, he turns away from Catholicism and towards the louder, more strident, born-again Christian movement. Jimmy spends hours praying and reading the Bible, searching for answers that he would never find. It makes him an easy target for Wickstrom's claims that Jews had created the farming collapse. 
Jimmy also quickly buys into Wickstrom's apocalyptic end-of-the-world preaching. He truly believes Armageddon is at hand and that he must do all he can to protect his family. And he works hard to convert his parents, Maxine and Norbert, and his sisters, Cheryl and Lisa, to Wickstrom's flock. He wants to save them, to save their souls. Jimmy holds weekly Bible study groups at his home. At first, his parents and sisters are hesitant. Cheryl tells him he's crazy. She thinks all of Jimmy's talk about guns and end-of-the-world battle is a bunch of bull. She wants no part of it. But Jimmy's parents and sisters slowly come around. Eventually, the whole Haverkamp family, including Jimmy's cousin Tim, fall prey to Wickstrom's evil teachings. The Wickstrom compound also proves to be a fateful crossroads for Mike Ryan and James Thim and David Andreas, two young Mennonites from Beatrice, Nebraska. James Thim still lives in his childhood home with his parents. Adopted at birth by devout Mennonites, James was raised in an extremely religious household. He's a good kid. He gets good grades, but he doesn't have much ambition. He works at a local lumberyard and is well-liked by his friends and co-workers. One of his best friends is David Andres, another failing farmer. David is easily seduced by posse comitatus rhetoric. He regularly attends posse meetings, and it's there that he hears about James Wickstrom. After hearing him preach in Lincoln, Andreas takes his best friend James, Th- James Thim to hear him at another meeting in Grand Island. Together, they become enthusiastic devotees of both Wickstrom and Posse Comitatus. Another one of David Andreas's good friends is Rick Stice. Rick owns an 80-acre farm near Rulo, Nebraska. Rulo is a tiny town of 260 people, 100 miles south of Lincoln and 100 miles north of Kansas City, just 10 miles east of the Richardson County seat, Falls City. Rick married his high school sweetheart, Sandra, in 1976 at the age of just 16. By 1980, they have three kids, their youngest, a cute little boy named Luke. By the time Luke is born, the farm is failing badly. Rick's crops are washed out, and his investment in hog farming is going belly up. The family is in dire financial straits, and in 1982, they have to drop their health insurance. Just one month after dropping the insurance, Rick's wife, Sandra, is diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, a type of cancer that requires costly treatment. Rick begs his insurance to take them back, but to no avail. Sandra is able to get some treatment funded by welfare, but the chemotherapy makes her violently ill, and when the cancer returns, she refuses any further treatment. It's a terrible time for the Stice family, and as the uncertainty and desperation build, Rick begins to attend Posse Comitatus meetings and Wickstrom-inspired Bible study meetings, where he meets David Andres. On Easter weekend in 1982, Sandra Stice dies at home with Rick by her side. Now left with three children under the age of 10 and a failing farm that cannot support them, Rick feels utterly defeated. There's only one thing that keeps him going. The new friends he's made through David Andres, James Thim, Jimmy Haverkamp, and Mike Ryan. And they're all drawn in by James Wickstrom's poisonous teachings. 
The four men spend more and more time together. They bring their families into the fold too, sharing meals, babysitting, having game nights, and increasingly holding Bible study together. By mid-1983, Mike Ryan has essentially taken over Jimmy Haverkamp's weekly Bible study. Mike has memorized Wickstrom's scriptures, listening to tapes over and over, and he can spout them all day long. The group is in awe of Mike Ryan's knowledge. They hang on his every word. James Thim, Jimmy Haverkamp, David Andres, and Rick Stice become, in essence, Mike Ryan's disciples. After a while, Mike and his group stop attending the posse meetings. They're tired of farmers complaining about taxes and banks and the government and Jewish conspiracy theories. For them, it's all about the coming Armageddon, the final battle that true believers in Yahweh will fight against all non-believers. And Mike tells them that Armageddon means wheat field. It doesn't. It actually refers to a place in northern Israel. But Mike's followers don't know that, and they believe Mike when he tells them that the Armageddon will happen in Kansas because Kansas was one of the top wheat-producing states in America. So not only is this guy um, super cool and seems like a really nice guy, but he's also incredibly intelligent. Oh, and a prolific liar. Wow. He had, he told, he also, so he has an injury on his foot that was in a tractor accident from when he was a kid. He tells all these people that he was a Vietnam veteran and that that happened when he got partially blown up by like a landmine. He also tells him that during his time in Vietnam, which is all a lie, he was never in the armed forces at all, but he tells him he was part of, of an elite death squad that butchered women and children in Vietnam and tragically... They're all very impressed by it. And Mike Ryan tells his men they are Yahweh's elite warriors. He tells them they need to stock up on all kinds of things. Food, clothing, camping gear, canteens, utensils, flashlights, and guns. Lots of guns. Lots of ammo. Weapons of all kinds. And all this stuff costs money. And the group wonders how they'll pay for it. I mean, Mike Ryan, of course, drains them of all their financial assets, but then they wonder how they're going to pay for all the rest of this stuff. And Mike has a plan. He has that figured out. Of course he does. Yeah. He points him to the Bible, to Exodus 12, 35 and 36. The people of Israel had asked of the Egyptians jewelry of silver and of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in sight of the Egyptians. So they let them have what they asked. Thus... They despoiled the Egyptians. Mike interprets, interprets the passage for the group, telling them it means that after the, Israeli, the Israelites had been slaves for so long to the Egyptians, they simply took what they needed from them. And if it was okay for the Israelites to steal from the Egyptians, he says it's okay for them to steal from those who do not believe in Yahweh. The group is skeptical about stealing, but Mike knows what will convince them. He calls Jimmy Haverkamp forward and does the arm test on him. Through Mike's questions and Jimmy's arm's response, it is made clear that Yahweh approves of the stealing. And as crazy as the arm test seems to us, the group has come to rely heavily on the arm test. 
They don't really understand it, but time and time again, it seems to prove them true. <laughs> and how? Like it's would, really complicated would you, stuff in the eighties. Should it you was, have another beer? Push my arm, see what happens. Like, what, like, what, what, I, I don't, I don't get it. And it, it oh. Okay. Well, you know, James, Jimmy, David, Rick, these people are all reeling from financial and personal losses. They're vulnerable, and they desperately want solutions to their problems. In submitting to the arm tests, they believe they're surrendering to Yahweh. But really, they're surrendering to Mike Ryan, forming a deep psychological and emotional dependence on him. In early 1984, there's a big meetup at Wickstrom's compound in Wisconsin. More than 200 people show up. It's a weird amalgamation of KKK members, paramilitary groups, right-wing radicals, white supremacists, and anyone else who has beef with the government. Obsessed now with, the, with Armageddon, Mike is rather bored with all the tax talk, and he wishes the weekend included some survival training activities. The survival training often included lessons on how to use combat gear, tear gas, gas masks, explosives, and fuses, how to make bombs, lessons on guerrilla warfare, how to assemble killer teams, how to harass and demoralize the enemy, and how to organize hit-and-run operations. There have been classes on the use of barbed wire, booby traps, landmines, and punji sticks, and the use of knives, needles, and spray bottles to administer poisons. Posse training has also covered night patrols, setting up ambushes, knife hunting, hand-to-hand combat, and first aid. And these are the things that Mike Ryan likes the best, and he excels at them. Another thing that impresses his disciples and keeps them under his power. So this is kind of like the first doomsday prepper, right, if you will? These folks believe economic or apocalyptic collapse is coming soon, and they are all about getting ready for it fiercely. They practice hard. On the last day of the event, Mike Ryan and his men have a private meeting with James Wickstrom, who encourages their preparations for Armageddon. At the end of the meeting, Wickstrom draws Mike aside, and he tells him, You know, Mike, it's time to gather your own flock. It's just what Mike Ryan needs to hear. On the ride home from the compound, his head buzzing with ego and swollen pride, Mike asks Rick to pull over, to pull the car over to the side of the road, and he asks Jimmy to get out with him. There, on the side of the road, he gives Jimmy the arm test. Yahweh, Heavenly Father, is there something you want me to tell these men? Jimmy's right arm rises straight up. Yes. Yahweh, Heavenly Father, shall I tell them your plans for me? Again, Jimmy's right arm rises. Yes. Back in the car, Mike Ryan reveals Yahweh's plans to Rick, James, David, and Jimmy. Mike tells them he now embodies the spirit of the Archangel Michael the leader of the army of God against the forces of evil. It's me, he tells them. I will lead the battle of Armageddon on the wheat fields of Kansas. Back home, now considering themselves soldiers of Yahweh, they fall dedicatedly to what they call night work, 
Under the careful guidance of Mike Ryan, they case area farms by day, returning under cover of night to steal livestock and equipment that will fund their preparations for Armageddon. Dressed in military gear and camouflage, they carry loaded guns with plenty of ammunition to spare and solemnly take an oath to never be taken alive. And they make a lot of money selling their stolen goods. Much of the money goes to buying weapons and ammunition. And when I say a lot of money, I'm talking well in excess of tens of thousands of dollars. One order for ammo alone exceeded $8,000. They also work with the owner of the local gun shop to modify their weapons illegally from semi to fully automatic. So it's Armageddon sermons and training by day, robbery by night. And Mike Ryan constantly pounds the drum of fear and paranoia. His sermons are outrageous, filled with dire prophecy, doom, and gloom. His power over the group grows stronger with every sermon. And it's not just the four men he wields power over. The few women in the group are completely under his control, and all are victims to his ravenous sexual appetite. Jimmy Haverkamp's sister, Cheryl Gibson, has been attending Mike Ryan's Bible study group for quite some time, and she's become a true believer in Yahweh and in Mike Ryan. But Mike Ryan wants more than another convert. He wants another bed partner. In fact, he wants another wife. One afternoon, at the conclusion of a Bible study meeting, Mike convinces Cheryl to come home with him to grab her kids and move in with him and Ruth and their kids. His current wife, Ruth, is understandably perturbed by Mike's desire. But Mike knows just what to do. Another arm test. He makes... Yeah, it's... Sorry. When in doubt, you arm test. (laughs) Do the arm test. I'm going to start living my life by that. Good luck. (laughs) He makes Ruth Ruth hold out her right arm and asks her, Yahweh, is it true that if Cheryl leaves this house tonight, her children will die in a car wreck? Ruth's arm answers, yes. Cheryl and her kids stay at the Ryan house that night, leaving no word with anyone as to where they are. When Cheryl and the kids don't return home that night, her husband Lester becomes frantic with worry. What if there's an accident? What if they're stranded? He knows their marriage hasn't been great. They're overworked and overstressed, and five kids only add to the exacerbation. But he doesn't think it's so bad that his wife would abandon him. He calls the Brown County Sheriff's Office, asking for help finding his wife and kids. No one can find any sign of him, and Lester grows increasingly worried and upset under a sinking suspicion. Cheryl must be with Jimmy's religious group, with Mike Ryan. It's the only place that makes sense. Over the next several weeks, Lester helplessly watches as his family is taken from him. Cheryl files for divorce and claims in court that Lester is running around with other women and is beating her and the kids. Cheryl files a restraining order against Lester and he's allowed only supervised visitation with his kids. A week later, escorted by Brown County Sheriffs Mike Ryan, Jimmy Haverkamp, and three other men, Cheryl returns to their home to collect their things. Three days later, 
Lester drives by the Ryan house in Whiting, Kansas, and the house is deserted. He files a missing persons report, but nobody wants to listen. Everyone dismissed him as an angry, desperate man who can't get over a bad divorce. Little did he know, Cheryl had already become Mike Ryan's second wife in a ceremony presided over by Yahweh himself. And Lester Gibson won't see his children for more than a year after this. And he embarks on this crazy quest across the Midwest to find them. He hires a private detective. They put out tens of thousands of flyers in multiple states looking for him. But most people simply don't care. So how how did Yahweh um, preside over the, the, the wedding? Spiritually and in the embodiment of Mike Ryan. Who's, so he married himself, yeah, basically. Yeah. With well, he's the, he's test, the Archangel sure. Michael. Oh, so that's right. I forgot that. He's got a lot of authorizations that come with that. Of course. A lot of pressure, I'm sure, too. A lot of pressure. Hmm. And what no one yet knows is that the whole lot of them, Mike and Ruth and their kids, Cheryl and her kids, Jimmy Haverkamp, James Thim, Dave Andreas, Tim Haverkamp, they've all decamped to Rick Stice's failing hog farm in Rulo, Nebraska. It's where things will get very, very badly out of control in a very, very short period of time. By now, it's midsummer 1984. Mike's group has officially cut ties with the Posse Comitatus and has even moved away from the ideas of Reverend Wickstrom. According to Mike, neither the Posse nor Wickstrom had enough focus on Yahweh or on the impending Armageddon. And the Rulo Farm, at, at the Rulo Farm, the arm test controls everything. And it should be noted, to this point, no one else has ever been allowed to use the arm test. And Mike would exclusively use Rick's arm in the beginning to speak with Yahweh on all important matters. Eventually, Yahweh gives everybody permission to use the arm test. So the men use the arm test to receive instructions about daily chores and activities. The women use the arm test to determine all daily routines, cooking, cleaning, laundry, even the homeschool curriculum was determined through the arm test and Yahweh. And there are 18 people living on the Rulo farm, including 11 children. Rick's kids, especially young Luke, are resentful and confused by all the new people on the farm. Their mother had recently passed away and they're not getting the attention they need. Further confusing to them is their new mother. Yahweh, through Mike, commanded that Rick marry young Lisa Haverkamp, now just 17 years old. She cries about it. She wants to return to finish her senior year of high school, but ultimately gives in to the will of Yahweh. Mike then declares that all the children on the farm are his children, and he takes on the role of a firm disciplinarian. The first order of business is to make the Stice Farm outside of Rulo livable for all those people and to stockpile, stockpile food, equipment, and the weapons against the coming Armageddon. They repair plumbing, build military-style barracks and bunk beds. They fill the basement with rows and rows of floor-to-ceiling shelves that they fill with hundreds and hundreds of gallon-sized canned foods, boxes of instant and dehydrated foods, five-gallon buckets of dried beans, boxes of powdered milk, 
they continue to increase their weapons holdings and buy insane amounts of ammo. They hoard charcoal and other ingredients to make explosive devices. During the day, the men engage in paramilitary exercises and target practice. The sound of automatic rifle fire rattles across the prairie day after day. Neighbors notice and they begin to wonder what Mike's group is up to on the Stice farm. Rick Stice's mother-in-law, Garnetta Buttrick, is especially worried. She hasn't seen her grandchildren in over a month. She tries repeatedly to see them on the farm, but every time she tries, an armed man meets her at the gate, refuses her entry, and says the kids aren't there. It takes a lot to keep 18 people housed and fed, along with their night work of raiding and thieving livestock and equipment. Mike pressures people sympathetic to their cause for financial support. He leans especially hard on Jimmy Haverkamp's parents, Maxine and Norbert. As always, Mike finds it easier to intimidate women than men, and he's especially threatening to Maxine, telling her that if she doesn't continue to bring them cash and supplies, something bad will happen to her children, her grandchildren, even her husband Norbert. Maxine fearfully complies with all of Mike's demands, including one that shocks everyone on the farm. Having consulted Yahweh through Rick's arm, Mike declares that he and Maxine are to become man and wife. Maxine is distraught and Rick is even troubled. But Yahweh has commanded the wedding. And so Rick marries Maxine and Mike in a short ceremony. So now Rick gets to marry people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm really following the organization of this They're weird little... well-organized on their big apocalypse time. compound big so far. I'd really like to see their organizational chart, like to see how it works. You think they got a whiteboard? Maybe job duties. It's confusing. Shortly after the ceremony, Yahweh orders Mike and Maxine to go to Omaha. En route to Omaha, he tells Maxine, You know, Maxine... I am directly descended from God. Like Moses, so are you. We are separate from any mortals. And someday, after the battle of Armageddon, you will be my wife. In fact, you're one of my wives now, according to the eyes of Yahweh. But in name only right now. He calls up a Bible scripture that says one man can have seven wives. Maxine says, Mike, that just can't be. I've been married to Norbert for 30 years. Maxine hesitancy agitates Mike. He bullies and threatens her, capping it off by telling her that her husband is running around on her and that she isn't really married to Norbert in Yahweh's eyes. Yahweh wants you and me to be man and wife now, Mike tells her. And if you don't do what Yahweh wants, you're calling him a liar. Something could happen to your children. When they get to Omaha, Mike checks them into a motel. And Mike pressures Maxine for two days, yelling at her, Yahweh wants you to be my wife in every way. How can you go against what he wants? I can talk to God. My way is the right way. On the third day, Maxine is exhausted and badly shaken. She can no longer resist Mike, and she gives in. The next day... When they check out of the motel, Ryan hands her the bill. 
she pays for what Mike considers their honeymoon and what Maxine considers an act of rape. Back in Rulo, Mike sends Maxine back to her home with strict instructions not to tell Norbert about their marriage and not to have sexual relations with her husband. In order to keep Norbert in line, Mike calls him out to the farm where he threatens him with a 50-round clip semi-automatic weapon. Norbert is terrified, but he doesn't know what to do. Mike is bleeding them dry. The Havercamps have already given Mike close to $10,000, and now they're tapping into their retirement. But fear overcomes logic, and both Maxine and Norbert remain in service to Mike Ryan. And it should be noted, Maxine and Norbert don't live on the farm, so many of these deliveries are being ordered by Mike through Yahweh to them. So they're always hucking out the, the charcoal and really whatever Mike commands them to bring out. And So it's interesting that he trusted them to do that, right? Like, sure. I mean, he wasn't holding people captive at this point. You know, it's... Yeah, I mean, they, they were captive. I they just were, don't think... They, they don't know it yet. Sure. And the madness begins to take hold of Mike Ryan in new ways. He's becoming more sinister, arrogant, and self-righteous. Every day begins with the arm ritual. Through Mike, Yahweh doles out assignments, tasks, as well as punishments. The men are always punished more fiercely than the women. One morning, Jimmy and James return late from stealing hogs and are commanded by Yahweh through Mike to clean out the hog shed where a dozen baby hogs had died and been left to rot for weeks. It's disgusting works. And afterwards, the two men are ordered to sleep outside. Rick starts to dread the morning ritual, continually finding himself outside the good graces of Yahweh. One morning, Mike Ryan lines everyone up and assigns them ranks. Most of the men are assigned the rank of private. Mike's son, Dennis, is given the title of prince. Mike Ryan declares himself the king of Israel, and he makes Rick a high priest. He names Rick's wife Lisa, however, the queen of Israel. It's a clear signal that Mike has designs on Lisa, even though she is married to Rick and carrying his child. So she got a promotion and he didn't. And when Mike finds out that Lisa is pregnant by Rick, he loses his mind and tells Rick he cannot tell anyone else. And he declares her pregnancy is from Yahweh himself. It was an immaculate conception. Yes. It, and Rick and, went along with the lie. she's a child. She's 17 and was uh, immaculately conceived by Yahweh and is now Mike's queen of Israel. So, from here on, life on the farm gets radically different and quick. Tension continues to build, and Mike becomes more strict and militant. The men and women are separated. Women and children all live with Mike in the North House, while the men are all sequestered in the South House. And Mike never joined them for any of the night raids. He made them do all the dirty work mostly while he sat in the other trailer and smoked pot and watched TV. He particularly loved the story of Star Wars and compared himself to Luke Skywalker. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, it makes me ashamed to say that as a Star Wars fan. 
I would have left that out. So the men are not allowed to communicate with the women anymore. And only small talk is permitted when men pick up their plates at mealtime. Rick thinks of calling law enforcement, someone, former friends, anyone for help. But only the Queen Lisa was allowed to use the telephone. Everyone on the farm in Rulo is living in complete terror of at, Mike. At this point, I would think Rick's arm is getting tired. I mean, I, I hope he's, you know, starting to hopefully pick up that... Hold on to that hope, Don. By December, things are getting very, very sketchy. Cheryl and her children haven't been allowed to leave the confines of the North Trailer since August for fear they would be spotted by her husband, Lester, who had been setting up stakeout and trying to find them. Compounding everyone's isolation and depression, Mike doesn't allow anyone to celebrate Christmas. He tells the clan that Christmas is a pagan holiday. Decorating a man's house, he says, with silver and gold was for heathens. On New Year's Eve, Mike Ryan gathers his clan and explains to them that in the coming months, Yahweh will demand their obedience. He tells them that the doubts some of them are having and the turmoil it's causing within the group will weaken them in the coming battle of Armageddon. He gives everyone two weeks to decide if they want to leave or stay. If they stay, they must commit and surrender totally to Yahweh's will. If they leave, they will no longer be under Yahweh's protection and will all burn in hell. And like he would have let them leave. I mean... I don't, I don't think he would have. No. Maybe. A few days later, Mike Ryan decides to see how strongly his message has resonated with the men. He plies them with marijuana, telling them that the Bible says it's okay to smoke it, but really, he wants to loosen their tongues. When it's James's turn to speak, James says, I've been thinking a lot about it. I don't know about some of the things Yahweh is telling us, and I'm not always sure it's possible to speak with God through the arm. Mike Ryan explodes and unleashes a fiery rage on James. You blasphemed Yahweh when you said that, he screams. In his fit of rage, Mike declares that James, Rick, and Rick's five-year-old son, Luke, are now his slaves given to him by Yahweh. He now refers to young Luke as dog or mongrel and treats him like an animal. In the weeks to come, James Rick and five-year-old Luke become constant targets for Mike Ryan's increasing rage. Rick has fallen out of Mike's favor ever since he impregnated Lisa, who Mike is now claimed as his fourth wife, He's furious with James, who dared to admit that he wasn't sure the arm test was a legitimate way of talking to God. And little Luke, the poor boy who misses his mother and resents Mike's heavy-handed punishment, is just too defiant. The punishment Mike doles out to the two men consists of isolation and chores, but what he does to Luke Stice is sickening and unbelievable. Mike's abuse and torture of Luke extends over several days. One day, calling Luke a mongrel, he makes Luke take off all his clothes 
and roll around in the dirt and snow. He wraps his whip around young Luke's neck and raises him off the ground. Another day, he sets a chicken at Luke's feet. Standing about 20 yards away with a .30-06 rifle, he shoots the chicken out from underneath Luke, terrifying the young boy and splattering him with chicken gore. As Yirin ran down Luke's leg, Mike ordered another chicken be placed near Luke, and he shot that one too. After shooting three chickens, he hands Luke the pistol and forces him to put it in his mouth. Then he takes the gun back from Luke and shoots him in the arm. Rick cannot believe that Mike has shot his son, and he tries to tend the wound. Mike says to Rick, It's your fault, Rick. Yahweh made Luke get shot just to show you that you and James better come to your senses or you'll be in more trouble. This was a warning. Oh, that's sweet baby. This is the last straw for Rick. He knows he needs help. At midnight, he sneaks off the farm, thinking he'll come back later for his kids. He manages to stay away for a week, but then, with no idea how to get away from Mike for good, how to protect his kids, he returns to the farm, knowing his punishment will be severe. It is, in fact, something out of a nightmare. Mike Ryan orders Rick Stice to remove all his clothes. He then performs an anal cavity search. Next, he orders Jimmy Haverkamp and David Andres to bring him a female goat and then orders Rick to have sex with it, an act of humiliation and shame that Rick cannot bear. Later that night, Rick is stripped naked and chained to the porch, forced to sleep out in the February cold. Mike Ryan's abuse and perversion continues to escalate. He forces the men into sexual acts with one another under the, under the threat of blowing their heads off. He makes Luke eat off the floor like a dog, spits into his mouth, flicks cigarette ashes into his mouth, beats him and throws him into the walls. The abuse goes on for months. Luke was forced to take only cold baths and not allowed to wear clothes. Dennis Ryan took on his father's attitude and joined him into the descent of sadistic amusements. As he was taunting James over his doubts of Yahweh, menacing the weakened man with his rifle, the gun accidentally discharged and a bullet struck James in the face. Ryan assured his son the bullet firing was no accident. Yahweh had fired that rifle, and he warned James, you better listen to what Yahweh is saying, or next time he might just kill you. James's physical condition continues to deteriorate, but his belief in Yahweh remains strong. Rick suggested they should leave, but James wants to do right by Yahweh. The abuse and punishment from Ryan increases in frequency. The more he'd yell at the men, the more angry he'd get, and they couldn't do anything right. In a, in a fit of rage, Mike Ryan throws Luke hard, slamming him into the corner of a bookcase. Luke stands back up, but then collapses, struggling to breathe. His eyes roll into the back of his head, and he falls unconscious. Mike refuses to allow Luke to be taken to the hospital. 
His father, Rick, tries to care for him, but overnight, while he's chained outside to the porch, five-year-old Luke Stice dies alone in the house. The women weren't supposed to find out about Luke's death, but eventually they do. Ruth is horrified. She questions Mike, but he says it was the will of Yahweh. Ruth doesn't understand. She's afraid. Something evil is happening here. Maybe, she thinks, it is Satan who is controlling the arm rituals. She never imagined Mike would hurt a child. She wants to confide in someone, but can't for fear of Mike learning of it. Everyone is spying on each other and reporting back to Mike. So everyone on the Rulo farm felt like Mike knew what they were thinking, and this gave him a strength to his perceived power. The reality was everyone was spying on each other and ratting each other out for questioning or doubting Yahweh, which Mike Ryan used against them all. James Thim, who has long been having doubts about the validity of the arm tests and whether or not Yahweh really speaks through Mike Ryan, becomes the next target of Mike's hatred and rage. Mike's queen, Lisa, is about to have her baby, who Mike says will be the grandson of Yahweh. In preparation for the birth, the south trailer needs to be purified. The farm must be cleansed of Satan. This means James Thim must be removed from the farm. Mike Ryan plans to, humili- plans to hum- humiliate him so bad that he'll decide to leave on his own. And the torments he heaps upon James Thim are unimaginable. James is sodomized with the handle of a shovel. First by Mike Ryan, who then makes the other three men repeat the act. The handle is pushed in deep enough to rupture James' James's internal organs. James is then chained to an overhead pipe and lashed with a whip again and again, first by Mike, who then commands the other men to do the same. Continuing the group torture, Mike Ryan shoots a finger off the right hand of James Thim and then forces the other men to continue, ultimately shooting all James's fingers off. When in response to all this repeated horror, James only begs for forgiveness, Mike completely loses control. Assisted by his son Dennis, Mike Ryan begins to skin James Thim alive. Dennis beats James with a pipe, laying his leg out along a piece of wood, bringing it down directly across his knee, crushing both his legs. Unbelievably, James is still alive when Mike Ryan screams at him, Now do you think Yahweh means business? Answer me, yes or no. James Thim whispers the word, yes. Mike Ryan steps back and kicks James Thim in the head. And then, finishing his demonic work, stomps and jumps on his chest until he dies. As the men lowered Jimmy into a hastily dug grave, his longtime friend, his best friend, Dave Andres, breaks down in tears, anguish rushing over him. Mike tells him that 
James deserved to die. Tells him, don't feel sorrow. There will be other friends. Then he tells David, hell, I'll have to kill you if you can't kill more freely once Armageddon gets here. At dusk, it begins to lightly rain. And Mike tells the others that Yahweh is cleaning the farm now. The last of Satan's people is off the farm. Things will go better now, and Yahweh's grandchild will come soon. As unlikely as it may seem, given the horror perpetrated on the Stice farm outside of Rulo, the end comes relatively quickly and simply for Mike Ryan. Shortly after the brutal murder of James Thim, Yahweh, via Mike, directs Jimmy Haverkamp and Dave Andreas to burglarize a large cargo plant northwest of Oregon, Missouri. And they make quite a haul. Boxes of tools, sledgehammers, handsaws, chainsaws, shovels, drills. They even steal a Xerox photocopier. Which, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> On the farm? What's, what, what purpose does that serve in the Armageddon? Like, you make it in like recruitment flyers? It's a rainy night when they rob the cargo plant, and they leave behind muddy shoe prints and tire tracks. These are easily spotted the next morning by plant manager Wally Ribasel, who calls the robbery into Holt County Deputy Sheriff Melvin Hazlitt. Hazlitt pho- photographs the shoe and tire tracks and puts an alert out to all area law enforcement agencies. A couple of weeks later, Jimmy and David head out to Seneca, Kansas, about 40 miles from Rulo to steal a crop sprayer from Kohler Implements. They loaded up in Jimmy's truck, the same one they used when they broke into the cargo plant. In the early morning hours of June 26th, Richardson County Sheriff Richard McNabb gets a call about a possible cattle theft. As he rolls out on that call, he passes a truck hauling a crop sprayer, which he finds rather unusual for that time of day. And the taillights are out on the truck. That's all the excuse McNabb needs. He pulls Jimmy Haverkamp and Dave Andreas over. The two men debate whether they should open fire and obligate their oath to never be taken alive. Ultimately, Because that goes back to the posse comitatus. Absolutely. Ultimately, they don't have the courage or stupidity, as it were, to open fire on the sheriff. And when he searches them, he finds loaded guns on both men, and he finds two more in the truck. They're arrested. He calls in Terry Becker from the Nebraska State Patrol to come take charge of the two men while he drives their pickup back to town. This is when he notices that this pickup matches the description put out by Sheriff Hazlitt a few weeks prior. McNabb calls Hazlitt, who drives to Falls City. Inspecting the pickup, they discover an 18-inch toolbox with the word cargo stamped on it. They also match the photographs of the tire tracks to the tires on the pickup. Now, they've got Haverkamp and Andreas for two robberies. At one that afternoon, a dozen officers from area sheriff's offices and the state patrol, including the state patrol's helicopter, converge on the Stice farm outside of Rulo. Everyone knows the farm is loaded to the gills with guns and ammo, and everyone expects a violent shootout. But surprisingly, Mike Ryan agrees to let Terry Becker come into the house and talk. 
Becker tells Mike Ryan that they've arrested Jimmy Haverkamp and David Andreas and that they're looking for stolen equipment related to that arrest. Mike plays dumb, telling Becker, They told me they were buying that stuff, but I had a feeling they was up to something like that. Mike Ryan thinks he can simply frame Jimmy and David, and he allows law enforcement to search the property. They find 50 or 60 weapons, 14 of them fully automatic, all of them loaded and ready to fire. They also find several hundred 10-pound bags of charcoal, several 50-gallon drums of potassium chlorate, both used in making explosive devices. They find nearly $150,000 worth of stolen equipment. They also find Cheryl Gibson and her children and five other children, including Mike's son, Dennis, all of whom are taken into protective custody. They arrest Mike Ryan for possession of a machine gun, but he's bailed out on a $150 cash bond. By now, word of the arrests start making their way around, and the next morning, Terry Becker gets a rather unexpected phone call. It's from Rick Stice. After the murder of his son Luke, Rick actually managed to escape the farm and tear himself away from it all. He was sick about leaving his other two kids there, but he knew if he didn't get away to get free from Mike, he'd never be able to figure out how to save them. Rick is living in Missouri and has seen the headlines about the arrests out on the farm. He asks Becker what's going on out there, but when Becker asks him to come in and talk, he rabbits, telling Becker he'll call him back. Amazingly, three days later, Rick does call back. And the two set up a meeting for July 11th, a meeting that will include FBI agent Wei San Dun. And a lot of these people's families were looking for them, particularly that of James Thim. His mother and father, super concerned he, with where he was. And they just said he left the farm and went to Texas. That's the last we ever saw of him. And that's the story they give everybody. So Rick doesn't tell them much they don't already know at the first meeting. But Becker and Dune can tell Rick is stressed, sick with worry, and he's holding something back. They manage to set up another meeting with him on August 9th. By now, law enforcement's focus is on finding James Thim and Luke Stice, the only people unaccounted for from the farm outside of Rulo. At the meeting on the 11th, Rick tells them that Mike Ryan beat and abused James Thim. He tells them that Mike was in charge out there. He was the leader. He was perverted and very smart, very clever. Everyone was afraid of Yahweh and of Mike. If you crossed him, he'd beat the pulp out of you. We were all afraid of him. Rick then tells them of his own beatings at the hands of Mike Ryan and how he was chained to the porch. He tells them that Mike Ryan beat his five-year-old son Luke with belts and boards. He tells them Mike made Luke stand naked in the snow. He breaks down, sobbing. And he tells them that Mike, Mike made me do a lot of shit to Luke too. But it isn't until a third meeting on August 12th the Rick, that Rick Stice finally lets it all out. Luke's dead, he blurts out, dead at the hands of Mike Ryan. Becker and Dune quickly make plans to arrest Mike Ryan. They have enough to charge him for theft and 
based on Rick Stice's te- testimony, they have a warrant to search for Luke's remains. On Saturday, August 18th, a small army of law enforcement agents from several cities and counties, the Nebraska State Patrol and the FBI, including two SWAT teams, are tensely waiting to storm the Stice farm outside of Rulo. But wiser heads prevail, and in the end, they decide that Sheriff Richard McNabb will go alone to the farm and try to bring Mike in peacefully. During this time, Mike had built up a rapport with Sheriff McNabb, feeding him the information that he wanted him to know. Mike Ryan believed that he had the authorities in the palm of his hand and that his two disciples were going to take the fall for all the stolen goods and everything they'd found on the farm and that no one would be any the wiser as to the disappearances of James Thim and Luke Stice. In nothing short of a miracle, Mike Ryan does indeed go peacefully with Sheriff McNabb into the Richardson County Courthouse, where he's arrested for transportation of stolen property. I don't think it's a miracle. I think he's just that narcissistic. I mean, it is, because they could have went in guns blazing. That was the plan, was to storm the compound. Well, because you know what's out there, right? Yeah. So the fact that this... This Sheriff McNabb had built this, you know, rapport with him. I mean, obviously saved. I mean, who knows? It probably could have saved a life, but I, I, I firmly believe it did. I, I McNabb going in there, getting Mike Ryan to come in peacefully. There, we'd we'd be looking at more deaths if not. Yeah, because I mean, Mike, he's this Mike Ryan thinks that he is above everybody else. So of course he thinks he's got him right where he wants him. After the arrest, two things happen. First. That tense and waiting army of law enforcement agents fans out across the Stice farm looking for the body of Luke Stice. Secondly, Sheriff McNabb gets a call from Jimmy Haverkamp, still incarcerated in the Richardson County Jail. What's up, guy? McNabb asks Jimmy. I'm real busy. We're looking for the body of Luke Stice out on the farm today. Yeah, Jimmy replies, but it sounds like you only know about one body. What? He says. Yeah, Jimmy says again, James Thim is dead. He's buried out there too. I thought it was time you knew. On Sunday afternoon, law enforcement finds the body of Luke Stice and then the body of James Thim. First, Mike Ryan is arrested on two counts of murder in the first degree. And then his son, 16-year-old Dennis, willingly brought in for questioning by his mother Ruth, is also arrested for murder. Ruth breaks down in hysteria when Dennis is charged and arrested. She had no idea that her teenage son had taken part in murder. Standing with Sheriff McNabb at the edge of the graves on the Stice farm that Sunday afternoon, Officer Becker says, You know, I can't understand how one man can convince a group of others that he is above mankind. How Ryan convinced everyone that he was beyond humanity. I just can't comprehend it. Mike Ryan was found guilty of the murders of James Thim and Luke Stice. He was sentenced to death in the electric chair. He claimed until the very end that the deaths of James Thim and Luke Stice were the will of Yahweh. 
Mike Ryan dies on death row from cancer in 2015. Dennis Ryan was tried as an adult and found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He's later released from prison 11, after 11 years on a technicality. After his release from prison, he denounced all his father's teachings and expressed remorse for what he had done. Uh, also charged were uh, Timothy Haverkamp was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison, uh, 10 years to life in prison. Uh, he was later paroled in 2009. James Haverkamp pled guilty to assault and theft. He was sentenced to prison and released in 1998. David Andres also pled guilty to assault and theft, was sentenced to prison and released in 1998. So the whole, sorry, I was just getting comfortable. The, the whole thing that, that makes me think, which I, and I'm sure is in everybody's mind, is, is how can someone believe in this craziness? And because as we're sitting here today and listening to it, it is crazy, right? So I, I actually looked it up as we were talking because I was super curious about it. And it's, you know, so it's, and it's from psychology today. And it's, so 10 things to know about the psychology of cults. So cults are attractive because they promote an illusion of comfort. They satisfy the human desire for absolute answers which I don't understand how the arm test is an absolute answer. And the fact that they just call it an arm test, they come up with a cooler name. The, Fair point. And then, you know, those with low self-esteem are more likely to kind of fall into it. New recruits are love bombed. So it's, you know, everything's just fabulous and everything's just so great. Um, and then it's the, it's building that us versus them mentality, you know, which, and, and so as I read this and then you're going through all of these things, I mean, they're just ticking off in my brain. Like this is, that's exactly how that's built, you know? And, and of course, Mike Ryan, um, cult leaders are, are masters at mind control. So, you know, my, then my question with, uh, with Mike Ryan is, is he mentally ill? Is he, you know, uh, a psychopath? Did he fall under that cult mentality? Yes. What, what causes, think, yes. what, what causes a, a, a cult leader to then, do this? Is it this absolute power and control over people, and it just spirals out of control? I it's I a, a word that a sociology professor professor had shared with me that is often related to people who join cults, and I think it's a, even a good word for Mike Ryan, who we know he blamed everyone else for his problems. He wasn't responsible for anything happened that happened to him. So and that goes back to a young age, too, right? Right, forever. So the word is disenfranchisement. People who join cults are often feeling disenfranchised and a cult promises retribution against this entity that has that caused your, your, yeah. your disenfranchisement. And then that fuels into the us versus them. Sure. And in, in this case, he was really able to manipulate their fears and given all the turmoil in their own lives and the desperate situations they were in, Armageddon made sense to them. It's yeah, I, yeah, I guess. And it, one of the other things that popped up was if Rick Stice's wife hadn't passed away of cancer, I wonder, you know, just how that story, how the story would be different. Yeah. You know, it's, which it's, 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 a, it's, it's certainly fair to ponder sources for this episode, this episode was co-written by Dr. Sean Antegni, a researcher and writer here with the Good Talk Network, the production agency of Midwest Murder. 
Additional sources at nebraskastudies.org, the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center, law.justia.com, oxygen.com, and the book Evil Harvest, The True Story of Cult Murder in the American Heartland by Rob Colvin. Big thank you to Nomad Design House for designing our awesome Midwest murder logo and to Eric Michael Anderson for recording the sweet intro music and to CJ Wynn for writing our intro. Huge thank you to Minot, North Dakota's legendary truck stop, Shots Crossroads, avail- open 24-7 and serving all six food groups any time of the day. There are five. No, there's there's six food groups. It's all the other ones that you know about, those first five and then pie. Pie is the sixth food group. And listen, when you're eating at Shots Crossroads, everything, except for maybe the pie, should be ordered in true Midwest form with a side of ranch. I agree. I this agree. is Midwest Murder. Thank you. Thank you.